Hi friends, welcome back to the Modern Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is David Pierce. We're going to be talking all things transhumanism. That is not talking about people changing their genders, but it is exploring some very exciting topic areas which I've wanted to sink my teeth into for a while. So today, expect to learn why suffering of any kind is an artifact that might have been useful to our ancestors, but is something that we need to transcend as soon as possible. How David thinks that humanity not only should, but also must progress towards a more hedonic imperative. The hard problem of consciousness and why we might not be uploading our brains into computers anytime soon. And a lot of interesting discussions about the implications of CRISPR and gene editing on the whole. We cover a lot of topics that I definitely should have been much more well-educated on, seeing as they have massive implications and are also pretty current to society right now. But yeah, I loved the conversation. David is a massively prominent figure in the transhumanism movement, and I feel very privileged to have had him on teaching us the 101 of transhumanism. So without further ado, please welcome David Pierce. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I am joined by David Pierce today. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. It's good to be with you. Fantastic to have you on today. Also nice to hear a familiar accent. Uh, so we're talking about transhumanism today. This will be a, a new venture for a lot of the listeners. So let's start off with a definition. Can you Can you tell us what transhumanism is? Uh, well, there are no sacred texts, but uh, very simplistically, I sometimes talk about the three supers, uh, three supers of, of transhumanism. Uh, superintelligence, this is the idea that it's going to be possible to radically amplify our intelligence uh, and machine intelligence and there are uh, different ways one can go about this there are different conceptions of post-human superintelligence but that's one of the three supers then there is super longevity this is the idea that there is no immutable law of nature that says that biological robots must grow old and die whereas silicon robots can be uh, repaired indefinitely and transhumanists uh, uh, believe in radical life extension indefinite youth with the backup uh, of cryonics or maybe even cryothanasia because for any of your uh, listeners who perhaps of a certain age think that realistically they're not going to make it <laughs> and the third uh, uh, super which is the super I focus on most of all super happiness or self uh, or super well-being uh, this is the idea that it's going to be possible to replace the biology of pain and misery and suffering uh, with life based entirely on gradients of intelligent well-being. This is uh, uh, replacing the biology of suffering, not just in humans, but in the long run, uh, the rest of the animal kingdom throughout the living world. Now, as well as those three supers, uh, there are plenty of transhumanists who would want to add a fourth uh, super, though they don't agree what that might be. Uh, for example, what about uh, super empathy? Um, but I would argue that uh, this is uh, embraced by any sufficiently rich conception of 
super intelligence that a full spectrum super intelligence wouldn't just have an off the scale iq uh it would also have a superhuman uh capacity for p- perspective taking empathetic understanding so there in a nutshell fantastic it's no small task i think is one way to kind of summarize the uh, the transhumanist movement then um interestingly i had uh, professor david sinclair on recently who you may know Right, yes, indeed, yes. Yes, yes. I had him on not long ago talking about the cutting-edge longevity research that he's doing, and during that I asked him, do you think that a human could live for a thousand years? Uh, and his his short answer was yes. So it's it's interesting to hear that people from multiple fields, very different fields from coming at it from genetics and, and gene editing, coming at it from this longevity research, and then your side as well, are all pointing in a similar direction yes uh, i mean this is it i think a lot of people psychologically would switch off if one uh, were to say well look uh, our grandchildren won't go old and die but you will i mean there's something <laughs> almost cruel about telling people that science is going to find a, a cure for aging shortly after you're dead <laughs> and i know don't know this uh, unlike most uh, transhumanists i'm not shall we say one of life's temperamental optimists um, but nonetheless, as, as, as I said, as well as uh, supporting uh, research into anti-aging technologies, there is one strand of the super longevity aspect of transhumanism that is focused on uh, cryonics and even uh, uh, cryothanasia. So, what are what are those two terms for us, please? Essentially, sorry, I, sh- I should say this is the I- this is the idea that if you are uh, uh, sus- suspended in optimal conditions that uh, so long as irreversible information loss doesn't occur it will be possible to reanimate you at some future date when what when there is a cure for whatever killed you Um, now it is extremely difficult in a technical sense to destroy information. Some physicists would say impossible. But nonetheless, I would say a, bit, a big imponderable is whether that people who are uh, frozen a long time, by a long time I mean hours after uh, their nominal death, whether it w- will be possible to reanimate them, that uh, in practice deterioration may be too far advanced. But uh, in principle, at any rate, one could have something like cryothanasia rather than waiting until you're 95 and gaga, uh, uh, have yourself uh, suspended where you are still, in, shall we say, in the in the prime of life. It hasn't been done uh, yet, but this is uh, this this would be one possible option. That sounds an awful lot like a book that I've just about finished. Have you read Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky? I blush to say it is now many many years since I've read a, a novel. Uh, that is <laughs> cool. So it was the um, it was the winner of the 2016 Arthur C. Clarke Award, um, oh. and it was the 30th anniversary one as well. So they gave it out to a fantastic book, and in that they have people who dip in and out of suspended animation, these long sleeps for. Um, Going across uh, big, vast galactic distances between different uh, different star systems and stuff like that, and uh, they they jump in and out of it like you'd like you'd get a shower. Um, but it sounds it sounds like the 
the technology for that to a little bit further away. So moving on to your particular domain of competence, you were talking about uh, super happiness. Yes, once again, that's uh, that's just a, a slogan. But um, yes, if you think of perhaps today's uh, hedonic range as minus 10 to zero to plus 10, with uh, minus 10 being the absolute pit of uh, despair on bearable agony, uh, hedonic zero being emotionally neutral experience uh, and plus 10 being the most wonderful peak experience of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, Imagine if it were possible to engineer a civilization that, let's say, stretched from plus 70 to plus 100. (laughs) Now, if that sounds too much like uh, science fiction, well, that may well be the the case. And much more morally urgent, I think, is focusing on uh, the sub-zero states that uh, plague so many lives uh, today, uh, that sadly natural selection didn't optimize us for being happy. It optimized us for leaving more copies of our genes or as evolutionary biologists like to say to maximize our inclusive genetic fitness uh and yeah there's no real convincing scientific evidence that on average uh, we are happier or sadder or more or less contented or discontented today than we were on the african savannah which uh is very counter uh intuitive but yeah the hedonic treadmill Mm -hmm. Uh, is designed to keep us discontented a lot of the time um essentially because it's it's good it's good for our genes uh and if we are ethically serious about getting rid of pain and suffering we're going to have to tackle its genetic uh biological roots i mean that may sound like crude genetic determinism in practice one is going to need a twin track approach you know everything from basic uh, income to decent accommodation healthcare, and so forth all all the kind of environmental stop gaps yes but if we're ever to get rid of the horrors of uh, depression anxiety disorders essentially all the nasty aspects of darwinian life we're going to have to edit our genetic source code and Perhaps the first thing I think we should do is, you know, prospective parents at uh, at the moment. Does one have a genetic crapshoot? And recall, every child born today is a unique, undested genetic experiment. Or does one try to load the genetic dice in favor of one's offspring by giving them a high hedonic set point, high pain threshold, uh, and trays like that now i think there are real ethical questions about whether one really wants to bring more pain and suffering into the world but given most people uh, do want to have kids uh i think the best one can do is uh, is is urge them uh to uh yeah first of all consider pre-implantation genetic screening uh and soon uh crispr genome editing yeah, I was listening to Jamie Metzel on Joe Rogan just earlier on today. Do you know Jamie? Have you heard of his work? Yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah. I was listening to those two go at it, and a lot of these topics came up. I think CRISPR at the moment is kind of a hot topic for the ethical questions that it's offering. But Jamie offered a really interesting point, which was he said in the future he thinks that 
parents who potentially have biological, typically biological births are maybe going to be seen in, as irresponsible in the same way as parents who don't vaccinate their children now. That if you had the choice of choosing through IVF or whatever advanced version of that is, this, what was it, embryonic selection perhaps? Pre-implantation genetic screening. This isn't the same as uh, as actual genome editing, which a lot of people regard as more more radical. It's simply uh, choosing what Mother Nature has 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 thrown up. But ultimately, it's it's it, it's a false distinction. And yes, it, I think it, it it's a good parallel. That uh, uh, yes, the most of uh, history. Yes, one just has to, had to trust Mother Nature, God, fate, providence, or whatnot. But <laughs> Uh, increasingly it's going to be a matter responsible parents are going to be choosing the genetic makeup the traits of their future offspring and the very nature of selection pressure uh, is going to change too. I mean, natural selection, sexual selection—it's—it's—it's it's, it's blind and based on random genetic variations. Whereas, increasingly, as the reproductive revolution unfolds, I think there's going to be selection pressure in favour of life based on gradients of well-being. But that's obviously speculative. Yeah, it's—it's it's interesting. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening will be thinking the same as me, which is there's a very odd visceral reaction that I have about um, this selective uh, uh, birth to it, it make creates these feelings of unease and I can't work out why and I'm fairly forward thinking with regards to this I find technological progress exciting probably above everything else exciting ahead of scary probably um, so and even for me I, there's something about that and yet you can draw parallels that had you have told people a thousand years ago that you'd be able to fly across oceans or had you have told people 5,000 years ago that you'd be able to get an injection that would stop them from dying from all of the things that are constantly killing them and their family, or you could take a pill and it would stop you from feeling sick. All of these things at that point would have been felt or would have been considered unnatural. Is this just another frontier or is, is there actually something different about what the, the, movement that we're going towards here uh well this time it's different but then it it, it always is and <laughs> any of your uh listeners who are thinking of all of the kind of the possible things that can go wrong i think it's it's a it's it's a healthy suspicion that yeah there needs to be exhaustive uh, risk uh, reward analysis you know the thinking of all the conceivable things that can uh, that can go can go wrong i mean inevitably there are a lot of people this kind of reflex uh eugenics the third reich uh, race hygiene mm. uh, other people will say brave new world <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. another reason is that when we uh try to imagine the future there is a lot of neurological evidence that what we're doing is drawing upon memory and the memory which we're drawing on is essentially sci-fi often sci-fi read when we were uh, 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 kids and sure, uh, half-digested memories of everything from, uh, you know, kind of Gattaca or in the case of superintelligence, uh, Skynet. So, yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I very much sympathize with anyone who is suspicious and who is pessimistic. Nonetheless, if we are to 
get rid of the horrific burden of suffering in the world, we're going to have to uh, tackle it at its genetic source. Essentially, uh, our genes designed us to be unhappy and discontented uh, a, a lot of the time. Uh, and unless we actually do edit our genetic source code, there is going to be obscene uh, misery and suffering in the world uh, indefinitely. Are you sometimes surprised that we manage to have lives of the degree of happiness that we do, given our genetic predisposition? Yes, at times. I mean, this is it. Nature uh, seems to just sort of play around with the dials and that those, sadly, there are a very significant minority of people who endure kind of chronic misery, pain, depression. Equally, there are life's temperamental optimists and even extreme genetic outliers who spend most of their uh, lives, uh, yes, uh, extremely happy, uh, which is kind of existence proof. Essentially, being temperamentally very happy, it's a kind of high risk, uh, high reward. One is more likely to go out do things, explore the world, take risks and so on if one is a happy, extroverted go-getter. Whereas if you have low low mood, you're more likely to keep your head down. It's a kind of low risk, low reward. I mean, that's a very crude dichotomy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, most people uh, on balance uh, love life. I mean, I might given my rather gloomy and depressive temperament, think mm. of Darwinian life as, as sort of sentient malware, but this is very much the minority <laughs> uh, posi- uh, position. Uh, and, and yeah, one needn't be a, a Buddhist or a negative utilitarian to believe that we should aim to prevent and minim- minimize unnecessary suffering. Uh, and what seems quite counterintuitive is the idea that all suffering all experience below hedonic zero is going to become technically optional. Uh, that, it, sure, suffering in one's life uh, sometimes, but only sometimes, sometimes it can be instructive and valuable. But the critical question to ask is, is it functionally indispensable? And as uh, silicon robots, machine uh, intelligence, AI uh, progressively eclipses humans in ever more cognitive domains without the nasty raw feels of of, of pain and suffering, I think we just have to face up to the fact that, uh, yeah, that, that suffering is just a ghastly implementation detail of Darwinian life and we ought to be switching to a more civilized signaling system instead. Yeah, it's this odd artifact that's come along for the ride, hasn't it? So the uh, I want to talk about the hedonistic imperative and the abolitionist project, both of which you're uh, you're big proponents of. Would you be able to explain to the listeners what those are, please? Yes, I mean the hedonistic imperative was the name of an online manifesto I wrote back in 1995. Why the hedonistic imperative? Well, I would really have liked to uh, call it, you know, the moral imperative to use biotechnology to face <laughs> out suffering throughout the living world. But of course, no, one needs something snappy and catchy. So I, mean, I think your marketing's better on this one, David. I think I think the hedonistic yeah. imperative works better. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it's not ideal because uh, hedonism connotes something vaguely shallow and and amoral. You think Woodstock, uh, don't you? Yeah, uh, whereas I do see there is a desperate moral urgency to get getting rid of suffering. But uh, in a nutshell, yeah, it it, it gives the uh, it, it gives the gist. Um, the abolitionist project really uh, just uh, alludes to yeah getting rid of suffering in both human and non-human animals via uh, biotechnology. Um, how far one goes beyond this, uh, yeah. Though personally, I'm uh, a negative utilitarian. I think that uh, our overriding obligation is to get rid of suffering, and then. Everything else is a bonus, icing on the cake. Nonetheless, uh, yes, I, I do foresee uh, a civilization where uh, their, their darkest lows are richer than today's peak experiences. Um, but that probably strikes most people as uh, science fiction. Uh, and that if anyone with a more down-to-earth temperament, uh, I would, yes, uh, stress more the, uh, uh, the issue of, 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 of suffering, yeah. I understand. So getting towards the, the rubber meeting the road, so to speak, how how are we beginning to go about that? How, what's the beginning of the proposed strategy, the next steps from now and then? Where does that lead us to in the, the longer term, like the real far future? Mm. Well, a lot of uh, futurology consists uh, of extrapolation which is dangerous uh, uh and sadly although we are just begin you know the first crispr babies if you think of the scandal of the is this chinese uh, researcher who did it with, allegedly without authorization from the parents uh, yeah. yeah yeah well he may have got well i was thinking more of the the, the state uh we now know that not merely did uh uh yes uh, not merely did the researcher a, uh, aim to make the kids protected against HIV that uh, purely inadvertently it seems memory and intelligence may have been enhanced uh, <laughs> genes involved in uh, uh, in cognitive augmentation I'm personally rather sceptical that this was a mere uh, oversight Accident, but yeah, yeah, but, but, uh, yeah so, uh, so I mean that said uh, uh, yes we are starting to pinpoint specific genes and allelic combinations involved in low mood pain sensitivity and even today if, if, if we are ethically serious it is possible to uh, choose via pre-implantation genetic screening uh, or CRISPR genome editing ensuring that your kid has Let's say, okay, start an extremely high pain threshold. Uh, why not abolish pain altogether? Well, maybe one day it's going to be possible to do so with uh, smart prostheses or literally gradients of bliss. But just for now, leaving the sci-fi aside, uh, if you give your kid, let's say, a benign version of the SCN9A gene, uh, SCN9A is a pain modulating uh, gene that has dozens of different alleles, different variations, nonsense mutations, no capacity to experience pain at all, but other mutations, high or low pain sensitivity. Uh, and sh by doing this, essentially, you can uh, ensure that 
you know, if you've ever met the kind of person, today's outliers, who, you know, the kind of person who says that pain is just a, a useful signaling mechanism. <laughs> Before we get rid of pain altogether, it would be possible to kind of ratchet up pain thresholds would need to be done with care for example you know would uh, do people with extremely high pain thresholds not show perhaps uh, sufficient empathy for the plight of uh, plight of others that's the kind of thing to consider but nonetheless other things being equal one wants to give uh, uh, kids high pain threshold uh, the other uh, uh, tray I think one would, would wish to focus on is uh, hedonic set point uh, hedonic set point this is this approximate level of well-being or ill-being that most people tend to fluctuate around in the course of a lifetime and some people have really high hedonic set point and other people low hedonic set point uh, and though one can't point to uh, a single gene that uh, is decisive here, nonetheless, there are a handful uh, of genes uh, associated with, with uh, or rather particular alleles associated with having a high hedonic set point. Uh, and do we want to ensure that our future uh, our children do have this? Uh, hedonic, high hedonic set point or, or today's genetic crapshoot and I think the genetic crapshoot is uh, is unethical of course as well as uh, as well as our kids uh, understandably most of us want to feel uh, better ourselves and uh, yes of course uh, d d designer drugs mood brighteners new uh, new tropics uh, there are a number of possible interventions there but at the risk of sounding very boring and conservative uh, given uh, our Given the degree of our ignorance, still, uh, believe it or not, if anyone emails me, sort of, what what pills do you recommend? Yeah, <laughs> probably far far better to initially at least focus on this trinity of good sleep discipline, optimal uh, aerobic exercise, uh, uh, and 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 diet, good nutrition. Um, that uh, sounds rather boring, but uh, so few people really get uh, these op uh, optimal. But obviously there are uh, pharmacological interventions uh, 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 too. Yeah, uh, a couple of points there. Firstly, the, the, the last thing that you touched on about people seeming to think that there needs to be a very fancy uh, solution to uh, a very complicated problem. Uh, we often talk about the use of people to do uh, to jump on the back of nootropics or uh, caffeine abuse in an effort to become more productive when they're unable to do deep work or stay focused on one task for 10 minutes. Or they don't understand how to task manage. They don't understand how to capture or process or review their, their um, to-do list, for instance. And it's the equivalent of taking steroids having never been to the gym for us, that you're, you're going a lot faster in the wrong direction. Yes, and uh, all too many of today's drugs, rather than cheating the hedonic uh, treadmill, actually kick it into gear with a, with, with a vengeance. Uh, so, yes, I'm actually, though I uh, write about and discuss, discuss different uh, mood brighteners, uh, drugs have 
well-known pitfalls. I mean, one of the biggest pitfalls, unfortunately, is that the neurotransmitter system most involved, directly involved in hedonic tone, whether one feels good or bad, is uh, the opioid system, the mu-opioid receptor. Uh, and uh, opioids obviously have uh, very well-known pitfalls. So it would be much better if we were designed genetically to have high hedonic set points rather than needing to uh, uh, repair nature's deficiencies. Yes, I understand. Uh, Moving to the point that you made about pain, one of the first things that comes to mind is surely do we not need pain? I I need to know if I put my hand in some hot water, I need to know if a car's run over my foot, etc, etc. If people are just walking around in this numb state of not knowing what's going on, is that not, are there not some downstream uh, negatives? (laughs) Oh, indeed. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, people born with uh, congenital insensitivity to pain need to lead a a cotton wool existence. I mean, in the wild, (laughs) they would just have uh, died and they're more likely to take risks. However, uh, there are other people who just simply have an extremely high pain threshold. There was the case of Joe Cameron, uh, this, this Scottish lady responsible, retired school teacher, vegan, uh, came to interest of medical professionals because she waved away uh, painkillers and the like because she just didn't feel she needed them after what ought to be an extremely painful uh, medical procedure. She described uh, uh, childbirth as a a mere tickle. Um, (laughs) Rather rather than uh, someone with complete insensitivity, it seems as though she just naturally has an extremely high pain threshold and genetic uh, and and research suggested that she had mutations in two genes in particular the far and what's been christened the far out (laughs) uh, gene Mm -hmm. uh, which are responsible uh, uh, for uh, anandamide the breakdown of anandamide anandamide is uh, literally etymologically bliss molecule and she (laughs) has naturally high level levels of uh, anandamide and she appears to have gone through life in a state of of of, of, of mild euph- euphoria but not uh, but uh, but as I said I said uh, responsible pillar of the local community vegan respire uh, 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 school school teacher um, one obviously needs to be extremely wary of placing too much faith in individual case case studies but i mean another example i give is of uh, yeah my uh, transhumanist colleague anders sandberg who uh, just yeah will acknowledge yeah i do have a ridiculously high hedonic set point what is this is back to your uh, your original question what is critical uh, to intelligent behavior to responding adaptively to to noxious stimuli uh, isn't one's absolute place on the plane or pe- or pleasure scale it's some kind of hedonic gradient uh, 
And uh, yeah, one might imagine that people who are just exceptionally happy would be less motivated mm. uh, to behave adaptively. But counterintuitively, this doesn't seem to be the case. That other things being equal, uh, the more the more you love life, the more you're motivated to protect and uh, and pres- preserve it. Whereas it's depressives uh, who get stuck in a rut. They experience learned helplessness, behavior despair sometimes uh, self-destructive behavior but preserving in yeah uh, information sensitivity uh, uh, the dis- distinction between being blissful and and blissed out and yeah, yeah I think that's that's something that was in the back of my mind that if it's a world where essentially everyone's walking around on MDMA like 100x MDMA sensations but a little bit more sober and able to remember what's going on I I wonder um how useful that society would be I think there's some parallels that can probably be drawn between that as a, a genetic or pharmacological solution uh and some of the concerns people have with universal basic income that when you take away people what is considered to be people's current reason for living that they'll be left in this kind of wallowy state where everyone's just lying around eating Skittles on beanbags and stuff like that. Yes, yes. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, in the case of universal ba- uh, basic uh, income, I think it's just a matter of any decent society will have something like universal basic income and get rid of this uh, It's a appalling, sprawling uh, welfare bureaucracy. But nonetheless, uh, I mean, the, the basic, uh, uh, yeah, can be relatively uh, basic that I, I, I don't think, oh, well, I won't go off on a long uh, uh, <laughs> uh, spiel there. It's very easy, this is it. It's very easy to, uh, you know, to sound off setting the world uh, t- uh, 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 to rights. But uh uh yeah i on the whole i don't tackle the the social issues to the same degree i mean i do have views on everything from donald trump to climate change to you name it but the point is other people have said it better so yeah i understand yeah. i think you've got you've got some some fairly niched down stuff that you need to be working on as well i think you can you can leave the politics to uh to some other people um, so one of the things that I'm thinking about straight off the bat, having read Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom, listeners of the show will know that I found the book both testing and very, very fascinating. Um, rather than being selective with our genes or, or using um, particular drugs or whatever it might be to edit the way that we exist in the real world, why not just do whole brain emulation or upload ourselves to the internet? Ooh, difficult question because this brings us to the nature of consciousness and the binding problem. Let's jump into it, David. Come on, let's go feet first into the binding problem, my friend. We're in at the deep end now. Okay. Um, the hard problem and the binding problem are worth distinguishing, though they're uh, interrelated. The hard problem is why uh, does consciousness exist at all? Why aren't we pea zombies? 
nothing in the laws of physics is understood today if one assumes that our basic understanding of the world quantum field theory describes fields of insentience rather than sentience if one makes that very modest assumption nothing uh, in today's physics and chemistry forbids uh, you and I from be talking to, to each other now and we we are both being pea zombies. So that's the question. What's a pea zombie? Oh, sorry. A philosophical zombie who acts uh, in exactly the same way as you or me, uh, but isn't conscious, isn't sentient. And I think the interesting question isn't the, the skeptical question, how do I know that you're not a pea zombie? The interesting (laughs) question is why aren't we pea zombies? Uh, how is it possible for consciousness uh, to have the causal capacity to allow us to pose questions about its existence, for instance? So, yeah, that's in a nutshell the hard problem. The binding problem, which probably fewer people are familiar with, is that even if you think that consciousness is absolutely fundamental to the world, why aren't we so-called micro-experiential zombies? I mean, the population, I mean, as an example, I mean, here is, you know, the population of United States, let's say, three, uh, 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 so, uh, yeah, is it, what's the population of the United States? Uh, I'm not too sure. Give me one second and I will tell you. Yeah, it's uh, population. It is 327.2 million. 320, yeah. Now, simply the fact that one has. Uh, 327 million skull-bound minds. However, they intercommunicate. Nonetheless, uh, we've no reason to think that the population of the United States is uh, a mind, a unitary bound mind. Uh, Or one can't be sure that the population of the USA isn't a unitary subject of experience, but that kind of strong emergence would be some kind of spooky. It's difficult to reconcile with monistic physicalism. Um, But the question is, why are our brains any different? After all, you and me, we are uh, yeah, uh, 86 billion membrane-bound nerve cells. Even if you think that individual nerve cells uh, uh, maybe kind of support rudimentary consciousness, rudimentary experience. Why aren't we just micro-experiential zombies, just patterns of mind dust? Uh, and so, yeah, that is the uh, the binding problem. Uh, and yeah, here I'm very much out on a limb. I don't think phenomenal binding is uh, uh, is a classical phenomenon. Quantum mind. There are powerful arguments against this, but uh, less controversially, uh, today's classical digital computers are not subjects of experience and uh, uh, and simply increasing speed of execution uh, their complexity or even making them massively parallel uh, there's no reason to think that sentience is somehow going to s- switch on so, so it's, it's it's not a case of i think sam harris talks about it being that with processing power consciousness comes along for the ride 
Um, well, I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose a lot of researchers, a lot of AI researchers do assume that at some time in future, our machines will become conscious. But personally, I think the idea that consciousness arises at some some kind of computational level of abstraction is uh, is, 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 is a mistake. Uh, and that I don't think classical digital computers uh, are ever going to be more than zombies. Uh, so therefore, I don't think uh, you or I are ever going to be uh, uploading ourselves, uh, uh, yes, into to, to, to digital computers. But I stress this is obviously a, a, a controversial topic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, yeah, Nick's uh, a book on superintelligence. Very, very crudely, there are amongst uh, transhumanists, there are there are three quite different conceptions of of superintelligence. Oh, uh, fascinating. Tell us about them. Okay. There, there is one conception of superintelligence, and this is one I personally subscribe to, that essentially post-human superintelligence will be us, that recursively self-improving biological robots are going to edit their own s source code and bootstrap our way to full-spectrum superintelligence and critically, with the aid of narrow AI, that essentially all the all the kind of clever machine, you know, all all, all the stuff one reads about, essentially we're going to be incorporating it within ourselves, neurochips, smart prostheses, uh, and just as you know, I could. You know, beat Casper off today with a neurochip. Okay, that's <laughs> cheating, but nonetheless, <laughs> still won. I I still likewise uh, there is so this kind of intimate neuroface. But I mean, yeah, yeah, I I don't think uh, 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 digital computers ever going to become conscious per se. Okay, that's one very that's one conception of uh, superintelligence. Superintelligence as our ultimately our biological descendants, transhumans and posthumans. Mm -hmm. Then there is another conception of superintelligence associated with Ray Kurzweil that essentially yeah, sees us as completely merging with our uh, uh, machines, possibly involving, yes, to mind uploading, that any distinction between humans and our machines will become completely meaningless. That's the second conception. Mm -hmm. But there is a, a third conception of post-human superintelligence. Uh, originally, uh, it came up with by I.J. Uh, Good, mathematician in the 1960s, developed uh, by Eliezer Yukowski and his colleagues at Miri, uh, and uh, and put in its most uh, magisterial form by Nick in his book Superintelligence, uh, which is essentially uh, sees a combination, and it's just the combination of Moore's law, i.e., exponential increase in computer processing power, mm -hmm. together with recursively self-improving software-based AI. That is uh, software uh, that improves itself in this escalating cycle. And on this conception of post-human superintelligence, there's no particular reason to expect that AI, artificial general uh, intelligence, will be uh, will be sentience-friendly, uh, uh, human-friendly. Its, its values may be perhaps completely uh, orthogonal. Um, so 
uh, I'm glossing over all manner of, of, of complications here, but if someone does uh, start talking about superintelligence, it's it's worth probing what they mean. I mean, I, I for instance, think that full-spectrum superintelligence will involve such things as exploring radically altered state spaces of consciousness, and mm. it's 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 uh, it's unclear what it would mean for a digital zombie to start exploring altered state spaces. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I I understand. That's um, it's interesting to hear different uh stances or different viewpoints on the the future superintelligence movement so to speak um certainly naval uh who is a big a, a big hero of mine when it comes to the podcasting space he talks about the fact that recently there hasn't really been an awful lot of movement towards artificial general intelligence i think people look at stuff like uh alphago zero um, and these sort of programs, which are simulacrums of human intelligence, but in an incredibly narrow domain. And the domain is getting increasingly complex, but not actually wider. And he talks about the fact that any progress in general artificial intelligence kind of hasn't, there hasn't really been very many developments. And that kind of lends credence towards what you were saying, which is that you will have the, head of the mothership still being reliant on the biological system that we are and then you're augmenting with the narrow ai within its capabilities to to add on the functions that we need yes i mean there's, there's always a risk when well essentially when one is talking about super intelligence in practice one ends up just it obliquely expressing one's own uh, limitations uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, I can't step outside myself and really obviously tell you what will be the nature of full spectrum super intelligence um, I would just urge uh, shall we say a degree of caution before assuming that uh, AI is somehow going to uh, to wake up I understand. So uh, one of the questions that uh, Joe Rogan asked Jamie Metzl the other day was why we have this insatiable desire to try and improve ourselves. Do you think that that's the way that we're wired? And and if that's the case, isn't that a, quite a um, poetically beautiful way for us to transcend our own genetics? I... Yeah, so this is back to, you know, kind of natural selection designed us to be discontented uh, uh, a lot of the time. Um, I wouldn't say all of us, or at least even most of us, necessarily spend our time trying to improve ourselves, but certainly not many people think, well, I've had enough, uh, I've got enough money, or I've had enough reproductive opportunities, and so on. The others, other things being equal, wanting more is fitness enhancing. Uh, so, uh, so, yes, yes. I understand completely. So moving on, one question that I really wanted to ask was, if you had the opportunity to create a, a wish list of advisors to help the government understand the future and where they should be directing research and funds, would you be able to put together a little dream team of advisors for them? And would you be able to tell us why you'd choose those people? 
Um, I probably could, but just uh, not uh, off my head like that. And I would prob- <laughs> uh, it would also be invidious too. And so, uh, but uh, uh, yes, obviously, I would. I would love to be able to do so. I mean, as as yet, uh, no. Uh, shall we say? B- billionaire or corporate uh, 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 colossus has uh, has approached uh, me with uh, 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 funding but yes it's uh, it's <laughs> it's in the post david i promise you it's in the post mate i think it will be so in terms of risks are there um things that are at the forefront of your of your thinking um that you're concerned about as we move forward with this are there risks to the way that the project can go, the way that the public perceives it, or, or um, more kind of nitty-gritty um, concerns to do with the actual way in which we proceed towards the, the hedonistic imperative? Uh, yeah, by risks. Uh, and there are some people, including some transhumanists, who think of life as fundamentally good and we don't want to put it all at risk. Whereas my conception of life today, frankly, is much uh, bleaker. Uh, that's uh, the non-human animals in our factory farms and slaughterhouses are as sentient as uh, pre-linguistic toddlers. Uh, and is, that the, is that correct? Um. What one, if one is being more careful, one has to say that a pig, for example, is demonstrably more sapient than uh, a pre-linguistic toddler. One can't be uh, certain uh, that the pig is as uh, sentient. Yes. Uh, nonetheless, the actual particular structures, neurological structures, uh, genes, neurotransmitters that mediate our most powerful experiences uh, of uh, panic, of pain, distress, uh, are nearly uh, are identical. So short of radical uh, skepticism or solipsism, yes, uh, I, I, I am as uh, confident uh, that a pig uh, is as sentient as, 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 as I am that you're, you're sentient. Uh, uh, and so, yes, given what I think posterity will recognize as you know, a crime against sentience of uh, almost unimaginable proportions. I think uh, perhaps our most urgent priority right now is just to get factory farms and slaughterhouses uh, uh, shut and outlawed. Now, moral argument clearly plays a role, but uh, I'm quite cynical about human nature. I think we're going to need to uh, uh, develop, uh, hasten the development and commercialization of in vitro meat, meat meat substitutes. Mm. Uh, It's not a distinctively transhumanist technology in vitro meat. It, uh, in vitro meat could be genetically engineered. It's much uh, more likely to be widely accepted if, if, if it's not. Um, uh, but yeah, essentially, I, I would see, yeah, we have this this absolute moral obligation to get factory farms, slaughterhouses uh, 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 shut that uh, I think, uh, heaven knows how we'll explain what we did uh, uh, to our to to our grandchildren, um, so yeah. I mean, although I can happily talk to you about all the wonderful transhumanist technologies and ideas for the future, I think part of 
creating a world based on gradients of intelligent bliss uh, involves stopping systematically harming sentient beings. Uh, we can't we can't be serious about trying to build a happy biosphere if we're systematically uh, uh, harming others to gratify our own appetites. Yeah, it's a an interesting perspective to be able to uh, try and take yourself away from your current experience and almost imagine the remembered self uh, looking from the future. That degree of perspective, I think, is something that not a lot of people are are used to doing, um, and it's obvious that when you do look at it with in black and white it, you are correct that you're breeding animals to suffer purely for your own enjoyment to eat um it's it's a difficult it's a difficult justification to make yeah i mean personally i yeah it's completely uh, uh ethically indefensible i, I mean I, sh- I should add that you know by an accident of birth i've never even tasted tasted meat so it's not i mean as i said it's not as though i'm trying to parade my m- moral superiority mm-hmm. but if one hasn't got this uh this this source of bias yes seeing what we are doing you know one reads some let's say some horrific case of uh, child abuse in the papers and sort of viscerally is feeling god this terrible abuse ought to be locked up for to life but then you yeah you see you know across the table someone tucking into a bacon sandwich uh it's yeah uh but yeah if i pass the you know the meat counter in a supermarket i i think of auschwitz and i think of child abuse and uh yeah i mean this is it when when people are actually shown one of these videos about what goes on in factory farms and slaughterhouses some people seem genuinely genuinely uh, sort of, uh, shocked but yeah you know far worse things go on off camera i mean it's, yeah uh, that's yeah it's it's uh, yeah it, it really is uh, 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 unspeakable yeah fantastic so david before we wrap up i wanted to ask for a suggestion of a book or a resource or a blog which you would recommend if people think this was a an interesting discussion and I'd, I'd quite like to find out some more about transhumanism and the transhumanist movement Ooh, heavens uh well you're i put have... on the spot again david you're gonna have to you're gonna have to put your money where your mouth is i'm not letting you slide sidle out of this one i like the the government advisors well, thing you got of, in of. spite of my low uh testosterone i'm going to say back in 1995 uh, uh when the web was young uh, in fact it was 1996 uh, i set up a a motherload website headweb.com h-e-d-w-e-b.com and although a lot of the material there is dated certainly the style nonetheless everything from uh core answers about transhumanism to yeah the core of uh the manifesto together with links to other transhumanist resources uh and yeah if if what if what i've been uh, talking to you about does strike a chord yeah there are plenty of of, of hot links uh, there but uh chris uh, yeah very much appreciated uh, it's it's been great chatting it's been fantastic headweb.com will be linked in the show notes below as long as well as some of the resources which we've been going through today david i i really found today fascinating hopefully within the next uh the next few years we might be we coming back on to discuss some exciting new developments in the in the world of transhumanism but uh for now we'll catch you later on thank you so much for your time fantastic chris 